If you remain standing for the scripture reading as we conclude today our Advent series, the series that we've been calling The Complete Christmas, and today, Christ as King. As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. In this country, we have and do not have royalty. And therefore, we have been spared somewhat of the drama and pageantry of the monarchy. And yet there is an interest and a curiosity that carries over, typically from Britain and their royal family. And I've seen recently, over the last several months, two cultural summarizing memes, those ever-important memes that are so prevalent these days. But these memes show the two level of two levels of interest when it comes to the monarchy, especially the, the British monarchy. The one says, don't mind the gap, I'm here for the drama. And the other, quite the opposite, says, I haven't cared about the royal family since 1776. I'm a little bit more of the latter than the former, but yet there is still an appeal to all of princes and princesses and kings and queens and castles and palaces of royalty and royal balls. I guess all of us have a Cinderella syndrome to some degree of coming into contact with the, the perfect prince, the perfect king, and being part of this altogether perfect kingdom. And yet, as magical as that may seem, I think that all of us are drawn to royalty and kings and kingdoms because that is how God has established his order, his rule, his reign, that he's established government upon the earth in various forms and in monarchies and democracies and even in dictatorships, all of which obviously fall short, some more drastically than others, of his perfect rule and reign. The good news is that despite the government, God indeed 
rules and reigns over all the earth, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and our ultimate allegiance belongs not to man, not to a country, but to him as our king. And that is what we celebrate this Christmas season, isn't it? The birth of a king. And yet, as you know, this birth was very different than any other royal birth. There was no royal doctor and royal hospital, no royal birth announcement, or no royal trumpet blast or royal gun salute when this one was born. Other than the star in the sky and the angelic pronouncement to some lowly shepherds, this the greatest of births, the birth of the greatest king, happened without incident, without the world even knowing that there was no fanfare, no royalty at all. But that which we did not know, that which the world did not know, we now do know that our king indeed has come and is coming again. And this Christmas is a part of our celebration. It's part of our revelry. It's also a time to rededicate ourselves, to be reminded that our allegiance belongs to this king. And so as we conclude this Advent series, as I mentioned, that we've been calling the complete Christmas, and we've called it such because we have the complete Christ. I contemplated for a moment of calling it batteries included. You might not quite get that, but if you're a parent, I think you'll understand. But rather, I spared you of that and called it complete Christmas because we have a complete Christ. He is our mediator. He is our prophet, our priest, and as we'll see today, our king, that we have all that we stand in need of. He has provided everything, batteries included. And so, as a result, our salvation indeed is complete, and that we are indeed not only complete in him, but we are cared for and provided because indeed he is such a king. And so we'll see that this morning in three points, the coming king, the humble king, and then homage to the king. First, the, the coming king. I've always wondered, how is it that royalty is chosen as royalty? How is it that they designate a certain family line and say that this is the king, this is the queen, and ever after will be those that are kings and queens? I'm sure there's an answer to that, but it is a bit of a mystery to me. But when we think of Christ being the king, there is no mystery, is there? He is the king on the virtue of being the, the son, the second person of the Godhead. And this is what Psalm 2 that we read earlier points out and makes so clear. As it says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, I'll tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth as your possession. Indeed, it's a coronation psalm, isn't it? The son is the coronated king and ruler of all the nations. And it is rightfully his because he is the creator of all the nations and of 
the world itself. Therefore, everything is under his rule. Everything is under his reign. It is all under his prerogative. Yesterday, one of the gifts that was given in our home to one of our children was the old Lincoln Logs. Perhaps some of you remember those from your childhood. And so as a result, there's been a lot of building going on in our home. And there's been rules that had to be established quite quickly, quite early on, that if you make it, you can do whatever you want to it. You can change it, you can amend it, you can add to it, and seemingly the favorite, you can demolish it. But the rule is, you can only do that to your own. You can't do that to your brothers or your sisters. Why? Because you're not the creator of it. But if you are, you can do as you please. Well, the world is Lincoln Logs to a larger scale, isn't it? And the creator of all of it is Jesus. Therefore, he is the Lord. He is the king. And likewise, he is the, the king over his people. This is so clearly indicated in the Old Testament, and this is why it was such a a slight to God when the people of Israel asked for a king. Why was it a slight? Because they weren't without a king. In fact, they had the very best king. They had the perfect king. They had the Lord himself, and yet they wanted a visible king. They wanted to be like the nations. And you remember, Samuel warns them, you don't really know what you are asking for, do you? You don't really know what it's going to take and what's going to happen as a result of setting up this king over Israel. But the Lord acquiesces, doesn't he? And says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And yet the Lord gave them over to their desires for a much lesser king, And that much lesser king was to be a representative, a foreshadowing of God as king. Now you know the rest of the story that most kings of Israel and Judah were a terrible representation of of God as king. They modeled their behavior after the nations, after the pagans rather than God their king. And yet the, the hope of the entire Old Testament, the revelation, the prophecies, the promises or that the son of David would come, that the true son of David would come, that would secure the throne and do so forever, that he would secure the line forever, one that would sit on the throne forever and ever. And out of all the promises in the Old Testament, I would say it's that promise that was the the most greatly anticipated Out of all of the offices of the Old Testament, of of prophet and priest, of king, it was the one of being the king, of kingship, that was the one that had the greatest longing and the most eager expectation. Why was that? Because, well, the thought and the hope was that, oh, if we could only have another David, or if we could have another Solomon, one who would make Israel great again, even the greatest among the nations, 
One that would free us from these foreigners, from the Babylonians and from the Persians and from the Romans, the one that would rule, the one that would reign, the one that would give us such freedom. That was a a daily hope and no doubt a daily prayer for Old Testament Jewish believers. And so as we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised that the the writers of the gospel want to to make this known because it is that promise that they anticipated. It's that promise that they expected. And now with the coming of Christ, they want to make it very clear that the king has come. This is the one in which all the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee this night. It is this one that is the king. And so as you turn the pages from the Old Testament into the New Testament, you you read something that is very strange, perhaps. You read in Matthew chapter 1, you read this long list of strange names, most of which we know nothing about. And you might think this is is an odd way, Matthew, to, to start to tell us about this one Jesus. But what is Matthew doing? He is connecting the the covenant line, the family heritage. And what does he want to to make abundantly clear? That this is the one that is connected to to David. In fact, he makes this abundantly clear at the very end when he concludes and says there's 14 generations from Abraham to David and then from David to exile and from exile to the time of Christ. And if you've been following along with us in our Advent series, then you know that Sinclair Ferguson points out that there is a numerical assignment of David's name in Hebrew, the DVD. When you add it up, it is 464, which equals 14. And so Ferguson says that the the genealogy of Jesus is sealed. It is stamped, as you were with the royal seal. And as you read those names, you should see and hear David, David, David. This is the son of David. And if that is missed, then you should not miss it. Just a few verses further, when the angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Or when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that you shall call his name Mary Jesus because he will be great and he will be called the son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no ends. And again, in that oh so familiar Christmas passage, the one from Luke that perhaps you and your children can recite by heart. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was from the house and lineage of David. Again, these words have become so familiar to us that we've forgotten the meaning of it. It's the, the whole point of the beginning of the, the birth story. It's the whole point from the, the journey to Bethlehem and the birth in Bethlehem that it screams that he is the king, that the king indeed 
has arrived. All to plan. All as promised. And yet the coming of the king is so very different than expected. And he is a much different king than anticipated. And so that is what we see with our second point, that he is the humble king. You might think because Matthew and Luke link Mary and Joseph to the royal line of David that there would be some royal treatments. But that could not be further from the truth. There's nothing royal about Mary and Joseph at all, is there? They are rather more peasants than kings and queens and no royal palace in which to be born, rather a lowly stable and manger. And yet that is Again, such a familiar part of the Christmas story and so well documented. Christmas can't go by without it being noted. But again, the question needs to be asked, why? Why is it that God would send his son in this manner, in this way? Surely God could have chosen a different means, a different method for the incarnation of his son. God didn't need the womb. He didn't need the womb of the Virgin Mary. Rather, he could have created Christ just like he created Adam. He could have made him fully made, fully man. No birth, no childhood, just sent to earth as an adult. Yet God sovereignly chose this method this way, to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, born to two peasants in the squalor of a stable, raised in the obscurity of the backwaters of Galilee, that of Nazareth. Why? Again, there's meaning there. It's all to demonstrate what type of king he would truly be, one that is not out of touch, with reality, one that's not just in the ivory tower, so to speak, but one that comes not just all the way down, but all the way completely down. It doesn't come halfway down, but comes down to the very sorrows, comes down to the very dirt and to the very dust of this earth. The one that understands the problems of the people, understands all the problems, even of the little people, and comes even as a little person himself. Isn't that what Mary rejoices in, in her wonderful song, that Magnificat? She praises the Lord and says, he has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. The greatest chose to be the littlest, and amongst the least, to be truly a servant of all, and use his power to lift up the the humble and the broken and the contrite, and to do so, he had to be humble and contrite. 
and literally broken. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, right from his infancy, the child Jesus would give every indication that he was the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. From the beginning to the end, though, quote, he was in the form of God, he made himself of nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, end, end quote. Ferguson goes on to say the Christmas story was heading to the cross, even from the very beginning. And that is what the entire New Testament wants to point out, isn't it? That Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says, is our merciful and faithful high priest. He is the merciful and faithful savior in his service to God. Why? Because he himself has suffered. God sent his son, the king, to a world that was not perfect, but to one that was fallen and one that was suffering, that is suffering. And he sent him not to be pampered, not to be spoiled, but indeed to suffer in ways that we cannot even imagine he suffered. He was the suffering servant sent to sufferers. He was the one that was cursed to save those that endure the curse and the fall every day. That is the type of king that he is. He came to be the humble king, the one that was foretold of old. As we read from Zechariah earlier, that we are to, to rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem, because your king has come to you, righteous and having salvation is he. What kind of king is he? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Obviously, that text has its ultimate fulfillment at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the end of Jesus' life when Jesus ultimately demonstrates the type of king that he would be, one that lays down his life for his people, the one that lays down his crown and picks up another crown, a crown of thorns, one that experienced the ultimate suffering under the wrath of God as the sin bearer. That's where we see our king. But isn't this prophecy from Zechariah 9 also seen at his birth? Namely, that his mother Mary, being great with child on that long journey to Bethlehem, as tradition tells us, doing so, riding on a donkey. So too, the words of Zechariah ring true. We are to rejoice, that we are to shout, because your king has come righteous and having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you see, it's the, the whole of the life of Christ, from his birth to his death, one of humility as the humble king. And it all demonstrates what he came to do, to endure the anguish of heart and body, to endure the, the drops, not only of sweat, but of blood, and that he would experience death for us so as to banish forever the anguish and agony of death that we all must experience and do experience. Also that those, as Mary said, of humble estate would be filled 
and the hungry would have good things. Indeed, this is the whole of the Christian testimony, isn't it? That he who exalts himself will be humbled, but those that humble themselves will be exalted. And that is why it's so paramount, believer, Christian, you that are a follower of Christ, you ought not be loud. You ought not be braggadocious. You have nothing to brag about other than your sin. But rather we come not proud, but as simple, humble servants, doing our duty in obedience to our king, not doing so in a, in a false humility, not trying to show everybody how humble we are because obviously that goes against the very purpose of being humble, but rather saying along with the mother of our Lord, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Indeed, humility, meekness, those are some lost virtues in the 21st century, isn't it? In this look-at-me generation where people want to show what they are doing and everything that they have done and document it for the world to see. Would we be simple, humble servants of the Lord? I put no stock in ourselves, no worth in what we are, what we can do, but rather that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, I think there is no other characteristic, no other virtue that points to our Lord in a greater manner than in humility and in meekness, because it points to Christ, the one who had every right to claim and yet claimed none of it, but rather came as the humble king, lowly and riding on a donkey. Well, third, then, what is our response as humble servants of the Lord? It is to give homage to such a king, that this suffering servant is suffering no longer. This humble servant needs not be humble any longer, but rather is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He is the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one that rules and reigns over all the nations even now. And so again, going back to Psalm 2, we saw that it is a coronation psalm, and that psalm has its fullness when Christ ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God the Father as he had defeated sin and death and the devil himself. He sits at the right hand of God as the God-man, as the Christ Jesus, the one that is to rule and reign. And I tell you, that is the scene in heaven that day. And that is the scene in heaven this day. As we think about Christ, we should not think of him as a little humble baby in a manger any longer, should we? We should think of him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that is ascended, the one that is reign, reigns and is reigning over all of us even now. And so what is the response? Well, the Psalms tell us what the response should be. It ought to be, first and foremost, a warning to us all. As that psalm concludes and calls out all the kings of the earth, says to them, be wise, be warned, O rulers, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. 
Come, kiss the Son. Subject yourself to the Son. Why? Because his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is the right response, isn't it? That is what we must understand at this Christmas time of who Christ truly is. And we cannot reduce him any longer to a nativity scene or try to minimalize him to mere sentimentality or a cultural trinket of sorts. But rather, from the manger to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, to his ascension, the message still rings true even to this day. Jesus is king. And therefore, our lives must be oriented to him as such. And we're to come and, and bow the knee. We're to cry out as those did on the, the day that he entered into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And you remember what the, the Pharisees tried to do. They tried to get Jesus to silence these people, to silence the disciples. And Jesus says, if they do not do it, the very rocks will cry out in praise. In other words, these inanimate objects, these rocks, recognize their creator. They recognize his kingship over them. And if we fail to see it, then we are, well, dumber than a box of rocks, aren't we? And so do we recognize this morning Jesus as king? He's the king of all creation. He's the king of his people by salvation. And what a king he is. He is crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2. All power is given to him in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28. He has dominion from sea to sea and from river to river until the ends of the earth, Psalm 72, 8. He shall deliver the needy when they cry. The poor, he should be their helper. He shall redeem his people. He shall redeem their souls, Psalm 72. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And of his kingdom there shall be no end, Luke 1. And therefore God has highly exalted, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, Philippians chapter two, do you see it's the complete summary of the entire scriptures. You cannot come to any other conclusion. He is who he said he is. And the right response as king is worship. It's homage to him as our king. That should not come as a surprise. As we heard on Christmas Eve, that it's the right response that was shown to us by the Magi those men from the east, we started this morning, we read that scripture. It says they came with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. They fell down and worshiped him. They were compelled along, as Calvin calls it, by a secret instinct of the spirits. And that's true of all of us that have faith. That by the spirit, we've been compelled along We've been drawn along. Some of us were, were dragged along to come to Christ. 
so as to bow the heart and the knee in submission. And that's the right response. Perhaps for you today, that is the the first time that you would respond in such a way. I would ask that you do so. That all of us, each and every one of us, all that hear my voice would acknowledge Christ as the Lord and King of your life. Present yourself as a humble servant in faith and in obedience. As that old hymn says, trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. As we conclude our time together and as this concludes our last Sunday of 2021, It's proper for us to look back and see how everything in this last year has been provided for. Everything that we've stood in need of, our Lord has provided, he's protected, and he has even prospered us. And why is that? Well, it's because he is the good king, the one that cares for us. As the complete savior, he is indeed the complete savior. Christ. And so as you have the next days to reflect, as you conclude this way and this year, would you take some time and would the question that would be ringing in your mind would be, how is it that I've seen him to be a good God? In what ways have I seen him to be a good king? In what ways has he given blessings beyond that which I deserve? In what ways has he been present in times of affliction and even sorrow? In what ways has he chastened and hastened and sanctified? In what ways is he demonstrating to be the author and perfecter of our faith? How has he never left you or forsaken you? And indeed, he is such a God and such a king. I tell you, if you would take some time to do that, then you would have great confidence heading into a new year. Again, not confidence in yourself, not confidence in what you can do and what you can provide, not confident because you know what's before you, you don't. This will be a year of much unknown, but because you know the king, and therefore you can have great confidence. You know the king, the one that holds the nations, the one that holds tomorrow and the year ahead, and you and me. And therefore, we need not be anxious. We need not worry. Only trust and obey and continue to worship and adore this King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has come and indeed is coming again. Join me in prayer. Lord, these thoughts are too great. They're truly too glorious for us. How can we fully understand, Lord, that you would come in such a manner, in such a way, not in a way to sit upon an earthly throne, but rather to come and take the towel of a servant, to not only wash our feet, but to wash our souls of sin by your very blood, so that we could be saved, so that we could be sanctified, that we could be new creatures in Christ. Lord, what a king you are. And what a king you will be, Lord, as we see you in all of your glory and all of your might one day coming upon the clouds. Until that day, O Lord, 
Would you give our hearts the faith that is needed to trust, to rest in you, having great confidence because we know who you are as our God and as your King. And Lord, today we present ourselves to you as your humble servants that want to do according to your word. So Lord, we would ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. Amen.